Well, I'm so excited to be here with you this morning. I've really enjoyed our Hope in the Dark series, and uh, this, is, this has been one of my favorites uh, so far this year, because <laughs> there's only been two. Yeah, it's, it's good. But uh, I feel like God's been doing a lot in our time together in this series, and uh, this has been a helpful, encouraging thing for me personally. Uh, this has traditionally been a really tough time of year for me, and I feel like church has been something I just can't wait to get to. And I think it's because of you guys. I think it's because of God's presence among us. Um, and uh, I'm just thankful that you made it a priority to be here. I want to thank you for being a bright spot in my week as we celebrate Jesus together. And uh, in week one of this series, we talked about why does God let bad things happen. And uh, just for the record, that was probably my most favorite message that I've ever gotten to share with you guys. And if you miss it, not even because it's a part of this series, but just because I think it is something meaningful and an answer that so many of us need, I'd encourage you to check that one out. In week two, we talked about hope in the dark when I feel good, or when I feel bad, but things are good. And uh, we talked about depression and anxiety that week, and I think that was good. But this week, I want to talk about something different. This is um, the ultimate bringer of darkness in our life that I'm talking about. And I think this could have more impact on removing darkness from your life than anything but the grace of Jesus this week. Perhaps it's not what you think it would be, but this week I want to talk specifically about something the Bible calls sin. And uh, I'm speaking to people who would say, I believe in God, uh, but I struggle with sin. And some of you, it's, I believe in God, but I don't really care about sin. For some of you, it's, I believe in God, I just disagree with the way he defines sin. Today we're talking about hope in the darkness of sin. And uh, this is an important week because I think sin is the cause of darkness in every part of our life. And I know many of you might roll your eyes and go, oh, man, I wish I would have skipped church this week. This is silly. But I'd ask you to give me a little bit because I really do think that this message is going to unlock a deeper understanding of God's love for you and empower you with the ability to walk out of darkness and into light. And at weeks one and two, we're supposed to be encouraging and insightful. This week, I want it to be transformational. This one message, I hope, will give you handles and encouragement and determination to walk out of darkness in our life in a way that's generationally transformational. And even if you're not a Christian, I really do think that this message today is going to help you understand why Christians care about sin, why God cares about sin, and just give you some insights that you've never had before about that concept. Uh, and uh, so I think it's going to be helpful, but as we're getting started, I want to say hello to our Jasper County Jail Campus, both services there. I want to say hello to everybody here in this room and in all four of our services and uh, everybody watching online. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, listen, the world for a long time has had a standard that I think has, is called the law. And maybe you've heard of the law, but there's this thing called the Code of Hammurabi that was actually basically the invention of legal systems. 4,000 years ago, this dude named Hammurabi in the Mesopotamian Babylonian Empire created this set of 282 laws. Here's a famous codex of it. And uh, basically, you know what's interesting is a lot of these laws were actually about rental agreements for oxen, which nobody really knows. Because the most famous part about this, you probably remember it from grade school, was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Right? That was the law that he set forth that for many societies following was sort of our code of honor. And uh, essentially what this new system defines is how bad can I be without getting arrested? That is the system of Hammurabi, and it is a system that would be sort of a prototype for many different legal systems thereafter. How bad can I be without getting arrested? What is the worst I can be in society without being removed? How bad can I be without destroying relationships? And uh, let me give you an example of the kind of thinking that is birthed from this sort of legal system. When I was seven and my brother was nine, we were going down to the dock. We lived on a lake and we had a dock with a boat by it. And 
Um, my dad was going to take us on an evening boat ride. And uh, my dad looked at us and he goes, now, boys, do not get in the water. Do not get in the water. Right? And immediately I was thinking, how can I get my brother into the water? Right? I'm younger, but I'm devious. And uh, so I looked at my brother. I said, now, Enoch, dad said we couldn't get in the water. But did he say that we can't lean over the edge of the dock? My brother said, no. I said, how far do you think you can lean over the edge of the dock? Now, I'm little. I can't lean very far, Enoch. Do you think you can lean farther? He's like, yeah, I can lean like this far. It's like, whoa, that's, that's pretty far. I said, look at that stick over there. There's a rotten stick in the water. Why don't you pick up that stick? It's about an inch thick, but very rotten. And, and I said, if you put that in the sand beneath the water and you lean way out in the shallows, I bet you get really far out in the water. He goes, well, I, I might fall in. I go, well, just try it. You know, so he tried it, and, and, and he got pretty far out there. Eventually, he's in a full push-up position holding onto the stick. For a nine-year-old, I'm kind of impressed with his dexterity, right? I think it's great. And I've always been this, this kind of, you know, person, like talking, talking him into stuff. And um, anyway, he's out there, and in my mind, I'm like, I, sh- I picked the wrong stick. This stick is not going to break. You know, disaster. But um, to my great joy and delight, magic happened, and the stick breaks, and my brother splashes in the water, immediately starts crying, and my dad is upset. And my brother, my brother's like, John, talk me into it. And he's like, your little brother talk you into doing this? And I was like, I mean, I don't even know how this happened, Dad. I mean, he just did it, and I begged him not to. And anyway, he fell in the water, right? But um, the Code of Hammurabi, this type of legal code, has always resulted in people saying, I want to push the boundaries, right? I mean, fundamentally, it's how bad can I be? But I think furthermore, it's, it's how far can we lean over the edge of the law without the stick breaking? How can we devise little systems, little legal loopholes? The, the legal system of Hammurabi has been an archetype that's been a code for our societies for thousands of years. It results in lawyers, courts, bureaucracy, a great deal of prosperity, but also people looking for loopholes because the goal is to exploit the rules to win, to get a little farther out over the edge without the stick breaking. This has been a guiding compass for the Romans, the Mesopotamians, for the Babylonians, and for America today. It's all the same. We say, what is the worst type of person I can be without being defined as bad, without getting arrested? This is what most human systems and human moralities and human ethics result in. How far can I push it without the stick breaking? How can I find a way to lean farther out over the water? The real problem is this produces a society that doesn't care so much about being good. It cares more about not being bad. A lot of times... When it's at the end game, it can produce an us versus them mentality, a tribalism, a how bad can I be? i got to work against them. There's this compassionless zeal that develops in people's hearts because it's a system with bad incentives. In economics, we call it perverse incentives. But this system incentivizes barely acceptable behavior. How bad can I be? How bad can I be? Have you ever had a moment where you began to realize you were just getting this whole thing wrong? You know, maybe the system that we've presumed has been the only way isn't the only way. I remember in my life, I was dating this girl, and um, her first name was Hillary. My last name is Hill. Right there, it's like, what were you thinking? You know what, John? Like, this should have never happened. But we dated for, I don't know, like three and a half years, and um, I thought that, you know, maybe it's meant to be. We are getting pretty serious. I thought that being with her was the only option. But about three years in, there was a part of me that was like, maybe I've been been getting this whole thing wrong. Maybe there's more and better. Maybe all these fundamental assumptions about her that I've been making and our future together just are not right. Have you ever had a moment like that in your life with a relationship, with a career choice, with a major in college, maybe with your spirituality? I also remember thinking like, maybe there's something wrong with the presumptions I'm making about atheism, right? I mean, this religion that all my relatives are following, like it seemed like the, it seemed like the logical way, you know, agnosticism, you can't know, but I thought, what? maybe you can know. There's a lot of evidence around us. When it comes to this code that we live by, 
How bad can I be without getting arrested? I think most of us think, yeah, that makes sense. What do I need to do to not be a bad person? That makes sense. But the more I've begun to think about this, the more you begin to realize that doesn't make sense. I mean, that is a really low standard to live by. And so many of us, this is what we do. How bad can I be without getting, with our taxes, right? Where are the, I want to exploit these tax shelters. I want to find these deals and we'll set up this shell corporation and this thing with our businesses, right? What can I do to get the most and give him the least and I want to whatever. And even with some relationships, how bad can I be without technically being a cheater, right? What is the edge of how, what is the minimum? This is so often what we do. We're so concerned with pushing the envelope a little farther. How far can I lean over the edge without the stick breaking? Jesus comes in. Our key passage today, Matthew chapter 5. He preaches one of his longest sermons that we have recorded in the Bible. It's Matthew chapter 5 called the Sermon on the Mount because he was on a mountain when he did it. But um, Jesus basically takes out, takes out this code of Hammurabi, this legal system, and he says, this is wrong, and I want to give you a new standard to live by. It's kind of a really big deal. I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 21. We're going to go through it verse by verse, expository message because I like doing that even though Jesus never did that. It's just what we're doing today. Um, but I want to look at this sermon that Jesus preaches. Because in it, he sets a standard that is kind of confusing and jarring if you come from this system right here. Let's start at verse 21. It says, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. That makes sense to us. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. It's like, whoa, Jesus, that's radical. You're calling me a murderer, right? All of a sudden, the standards aren't just a little bit higher than they were before. Jesus didn't come to make the standards higher. He moves them to the opposite end of the spectrum. I mean, this is, this is crazy. This is way out there, right? In verse 27, he goes on. He says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is one that I find convicting because by this standard, I'm an adulterer many times over. I mean, that one's tough. It's like Jesus. I mean, I find that, I find that a little offensive, right? He goes on in verse 38, he says, you've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, this is big. This is earth shattering for almost every human civilization. You know why? He is calling out the code of Hammurabi right here. I mean, for 1,700 years, this had been the rule of the day. I mean, today, this is almost 4,000-year-old code. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 this system of justice, this system of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, maybe we've got it wrong. He says, but I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, off of the other cheek also. This singular statement right here is baffling to people around the world apart from Christ. Jesus says the code that every human civilization has used up to this point, it's not enough. He's calling it out. He wants us to question our fundamental assumptions about justice. He's saying, do we like the way that we treat people? Do we like our views of other people? Maybe we have this all wrong. Maybe the system of justice and the assumptions that go with it, maybe we have it wrong. Finally, he reinforces this call out with something that I think is um, an extremely earth-shattering verse. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it set me free from so much. But in Matthew 5.43, he goes, You've heard the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think that misunderstanding around this part of the message that Jesus preaches on the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, is why so many people get offended with Christianity. Because number one... They look at that and they say, Jesus is ridiculous. And everybody hearing this should be shocked by it. But not just because, it's, because we fail at the standard. I think it's because Jesus is creating a new justice system that changes the way we think about justice in general. You see, the old system we lived in was um, built on this statement right here. How bad can I be? How far out over the edge can I lean before I actually fall in the water? 
right? How bad can I be while still functioning in society, while still having relationships with people? Jesus says, no, no, no. That's, that's dumb. Let's not think about that anymore. The new system that Jesus invents is how loving can I be? Right? How loving can I be? And this is radically different because instead of saying how far over the edge can I lean, Jesus is now saying we want to get as far away from the edge as possible. It's something totally different. How loving can I be? Or another way to put it is what does love require me right now, require of me in this moment? What is a loving thing to do? This is God's law. I've heard people say, well, God's law is anything that would hurt anyone else is sin. And no, no, no. That's not God's law at all. That's not God's new law in the New Testament. No, no. Anything less than loving to others is sin. Anything less than your best for others is sin in that moment. That's a new code. And it's a super high standard. And I think on the service level, part of it is a little discouraging. It sounds bad and weak. In part because, well, I can't meet that standard. And in part because I don't want to be a doormat. You read that and you're like, I don't want to be a doormat. But you know what's crazy about the system is you hope everybody else follows it. Right? You're like, well, I don't know if I want to follow that, but I sure hope my daughter marries someone who follows that system. I sure hope my neighbor follows that system. I sure hope that my boss follows that system, right? Because, I mean, who doesn't want others to give us their best? You know, instead of just saying, well, I don't want to be bad, what if somebody started saying, what does love require of me to treat you in this moment all the time? That'd be a good thing. I think as we talk a little bit more about it today, you might come to see that God's plan for our life regarding sin is actually a good thing, not a bad thing, even for us to follow. This system, when followed by society, would be revolutionary. It would initiate several eras of unparalleled uh, socioeconomic prosperity and health and productivity. The American economic expansion of the 50s and 60s was rooted in a society that began following this new thinking about justice because of the Billy Graham revivals. For one bright, shining moment, there was a generation that latched onto this new mentality. Instead of saying, how can I get justice, America as a whole, for two decades said, what can I do that is loving towards other people? And it was transformational. Instead of asking, what does the law require of me, which is a low standard, Jesus says, what does love require of me? This is not enabling. This is not meant to be codependent. This is something totally different. The old system said, How can we get entitlement and justice for all humanity, right? We say, what are your fundamental entitlements? What are your fundamental human rights? And and, and what does justice require? That's the old system. And this system produces this expanding array of different laws and boundaries. Here's the thing. Everybody wants to exploit these laws. Everybody wants to exploit the boundaries. So what do we have to do? We have to make new laws, new boundaries. And we end up with this bureaucracy that grows and grows and grows over time, right? I mean, America didn't have that many laws in 1776, but all of a sudden the laws are so great, so many, because everybody's pushing the boundary in every area because our standard is what is the worst I can be, right? And Jesus says that's ridiculous. That system is never going to work because when everybody is thinking about how they can break the law, you're going to end up overcome by laws, Jesus says, no, that's not the system I want to make. Instead of worrying about how close you can get to the edge, Jesus says, let's make a new system that says, how good can we be? And the new system, instead of being based on entitlement and justice and defining the edge of how bad you can be, it's just based on you being the best that you can be. This makes everyone and everything better. And societies, including ours in America, fall away from this new system back into this old system. We can see human love, human thriving, and human relational prosperity dying. And it's replaced every time we fall out of the system. Every time a society has fallen out of the system for the last 2,000 years. What do we see emerge? We can see it over and over again in history. We see political tribalism. We see assuming the worst about others. We see a culture of politeness and respect die and replace with a desire to win personally over a desire to love corporately. We see this in America right now. We are living in it right now as we fall away from the teachings of Jesus. And this isn't just me saying. I mean, we can see this sociologically. Because the law of the day in America is no longer love. It is now based on entitlement and justice. We can see the darkness on a societal level, but I want you to know society is a reflection of individuals. 
And the problem isn't that society is falling away from the system. The problem is I think we as individuals, and even us as Christians, don't really live with love and grace. We live with entitlement and justice. I think our goal for so many of us as Christians is, Jesus, what is the worst kind of Christian that I can be and still be okay? You show me where the edge of Christianity is, and I'll get a stick, and I'll lean out over the edge, but I just want to barely make it into heaven because I want to party as much as I That's the way that we live. And Jesus says, you have a totally wrong mentality. You're missing out. I see so many of us would say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really living for sin, but I think a lot of us are. Because if you're not living for God's extremely high standard of love, then we are living for sin. So many of us ask, is it illegal? In other words, how far can I get away from God's love without breaking God's love? And here's the thing about sin. The stick always breaks in the long run. So many of us are rolling in the water, and we're miserable, and then we're in the dark. I think so many of us, it's because we're, we're living with wrong incentives. We're using the wrong standard to live by. Instead of asking, what is the best I can be for others, so many of us say, what is the worst I can be? I want to spend a few moments talking about why I think we choose sin. So I think there's some fundamental assumptions in our life that cause us to choose sin. I know a lot of you here today, you're like, okay, you know, I don't want to sin. I just, I choose it because it's tempting and, you know, it seems awesome, right? I remember as a 13-year-old, like, being like, man, I would, I would like to sin a lot. Sin seems awesome and I don't really want to follow Jesus because I don't want to miss out on all these fun things that I want to do in life, right? Why do we choose sin? I think the fundamental answer is because we don't trust God as a good father. At its core, so many Christians believe in God because it's easy to believe in God. We're not superstitious. We're not atheists. We don't follow that cult. We're not agnostic. We can know God. It's easy to believe in God. I think it's just hard to trust him. Belief is easy. Trust is hard. Trust is hard. I remember as a teenager thinking, I don't trust God's teaching. I don't think that his plan is going to work for my life. His plan means missing out on my best life. What I really meant is I don't think that God loves me. I don't think if he loved me, he would let me do the things. They're gonna... my, my daughter, Hermione, um, she's my middle child. And if you have middle children, it's like always, everything's always not fair. That's the hard part about middle children. You know, it's like, you don't love me. How come they got two more goldfish than I got? It's like, how do you keep score? How do you know that? How do you know that there's two more goldfish in that bowl? This is just ridiculous, right? But my middle child, Hermione, the other day, failed to do her homework without me reminding her. And that's like a big no-no in the Hill household. Like, you need to be self-sufficient. I shouldn't, you are in the second half of kindergarten. You should be able to do your homework without me reminding you, Right? So I was giving her some consequences for this, and in the middle of it, she was like, why don't you love me? And that's crazy. I was disciplining her because I love her, because that's what love does. But what did Hermione do? She did not trust that I was a good father in that moment. In the same way, I think so many of us don't think that God is a good father. It's easy to believe that he's real. Again, we're not superstitious. We're not atheists. We know something can't come from nothing. But it's harder, it's harder to trust that he's good. And some teenage guys in the room, I know what you're thinking, right? We live in it. We live in a society that I think the, the youngest generation, it is harder than ever to follow Jesus. I have so much compassion for the youngest generation right now in America today. I hope we're praying for them. But the youngest generation in particular, I think so many of you are like, well, I believe that God exists. I'm not, I just, I don't think he's a good dad. I'm not trusting this love thing. I want to sin. I'm just going to try and be as bad as I can without going to jail. jail. And maybe I'll, maybe I'll worry about living a better life later, but right now I just want to send it. Because I don't trust that God loves me as much as I trust my own sense of fun. And on the surface, on the surface, a lot of parents would say, well, my son, my daughter is rebelling. Yeah, they are rebelling. That's part of what it is. But it's just a symptom of a deeper issue. See, rebellion is always rooted in a lack of trust. A lack of trust that God is a good father or that you are a good parent. Right? And so what do our kids do? They smoke the jewel. They buy the CBD. They ask for the nudes. They party hard. It's rebellion on the surface. But deeper down, it's an I don't trust that God's way is best. 
I don't think that God's way will lead to my best now or later, and I don't think it's worth it. In the same way that Hermione has difficulty trusting me as a loving father, I think so many of us do not trust our heavenly father as loving, and we don't think his way is worth it. So instead of trying to be the most loving that we can be for all people for all time, which is God's way, we try to be the most selfish that we can be without being removed from society. How far out can I lean over the edge? How far out can I lean over my family's rules without the stick breaking? That's the game we're playing. That's a natural human way. And mark my words, mark my words. The older I get, the more I realize this. The stick will always break. It will always break. For some of you, it already has. And some of you are there right now. I just want to call you to throw the stick out, to get back on the dock, and ask Jesus to forgive you and help you dry out. Like as a faith community, this is a place that is welcoming and loving. We always say it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. We want to help you. We want to help you. We want to love you back into a plan that's going to lead to your best and God's best and God's glory. You don't have to keep living without hope. And I know old habits die hard. But follow the way of love with Jesus. There is more and better. Now, what I want to do is I want to spend a few minutes in this talk specifically focusing on three areas God is a good father and his way of love works. Because I think fundamentally, especially in this day and age, there's a lot of us who just say, well, I don't believe that God's plan actually works. I believe God exists. That's easy. I just don't believe his plan works. Perhaps the biggest one today is sexually. It's hard to believe that God's way of love is good sexually. And I want to speak specifically um, to heterosexuality right now. I've done uh, many sermons about people with questions regarding LGBT stuff, and uh, I'm sorry that I don't have time to address that today, but we're going to link my most recent talk to that in the description to this message if you have questions about that. But um, listen, God's way uh, of, of calling us to be sexually is good, and a lot of us don't feel like that. God is a good father, and I want to lay out why he is a good father in this way. God says, don't have sex or even be sexual before you're married. He says this for so many reasons, but the biggest is because it's loving. Think about this. Sex binds us together. That's what it does, right? And when we are dating, the whole point is to decide whether or not we want to be bound together. If you want to be bound together, then get married, right? But when we're dating, and this is, this is the problem. You ever have friends who are like just a terrible couple? It's like, you guys are the worst together. Like, we love you. We just hate you when you're with her because you're crazy and she's crazy. And literally, you guys are the worst human beings when you're together. Please, please, for the love of everyone, including yourselves, break up, right? Why don't they break up? Why don't they break up? Because they're physical together, right? Because physicality binds us together. I know so many people who got married because they were physical before they're married. And it's like, once you get in that situation, if you never kissed her, you would have broken up in two days because she cries a you know what I mean? You would have seen it, but you're bound together. So many people marry these difficult relate because you slept together, because you sent the pics, because you cuddled, because you made out, because other stuff, right? And Jesus says, don't do that because I love you, because I love you. I want you to have a great marriage. And you're going to have these sex goggles on that will destroy your ability to assess and evaluate this relationship in a healthy way. He also says, don't be physical because, listen, how many memories of others do you hope that you and your spouse have forever in the context of your marriage? He says it because heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman for life is the single biggest indicator of children becoming healthy adults. More than wealth, more than intelligence, more than genes, more than race, more than location. Isn't that crazy? I'll say this also includes um, doing things that enmesh you, before, enmesh you together before you're married. Like living together before you're married. Having cell plans together before you're married. Having pets together before you're married. Don't do it. God says anything that married people do is one flesh. If you do it before you're married, it's just going to bind you together and prevent you from making good choices until you're married. Following God's plan is the loving thing to do. And you don't need to be a Christian to see it. This isn't like the Bible says, so that settles it. This is like the Bible says this, and there's overwhelming evidence outside of and beyond this. Even though society laughs at it, that would show this is the wise thing to do with your life. You still might say, well, not following God's plan is not necessarily unloving. But I would disagree with you. I think not following God's plan is unloving. I mean, hurting someone's chance of raising great, healthy kids 
and having a successful marriage and having a higher level of life satisfaction, yeah, that's what not following God's plan does. This is why God calls us to follow his plan. Don't live together before you're married. Don't have sex with someone before you're married because we love them. If your goal is to not get arrested and lean out as far over the edge as you can without the stick breaking, then, then don't follow God's plan. But God calls us to love because he loves us. And by all measures, he's a good father in this department. And I get it in my flesh, especially as a teenager. I was like, I don't trust him. I want to test drive the car before I buy it. Some of you are here now, and the stick is breaking. You're wondering, why did I do this? Or you think the stick won't break. Listen, the stick will break. Stats don't lie. Every single indicator that we have is that God is a good, loving father in regard to this and everything else. And this is why he says, You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. His standard is don't be physical at all until you're married. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you. And he wants you to do good things for you and your children. High schoolers in the room, they always ask me, they always ask me, Pastor, how far is too far? And I used to try to set all kind of boundaries, like, well, you can do this, but you can't do that. And now I'm at a place, I mean, when I read this, I'm like, can you make out with a girl and not think lustful thoughts of her? No, you can't. You can't. Like, when I was in high school, I don't even think I could hold a girl's hand without thinking lustful thoughts of her. You know what I mean? Like, I just thought, man, don't be physical. Don't be physical because I want to make great choices. And I wish I would have taken my own advice because I wasted three and a half years in a relationship with this girl because, you know, I mean, I didn't sleep with her, but we did other stuff, and it was bad. It was bad. It, it trapped. I wasted my life. I wish I had to take back. God says don't. And I'm not saying this for legalism. I'm not telling the church to put doily on your heads and whatever, whatever, and whatever. Listen, this is for your joy. This is for your joy, for the joy set before you. God loves you. Suddenly, God has a plan that makes a lot more sense. If you want hope in the dark, believe that God is a good father and start following his plan. It's never too late to start, by the way, too. Listen, if you miss the bus on this for a lot of your life, you, it, what can stop you from passing this to the next generation and say, guess what? God has a plan for your life that's for your joy and for your love, and I want to call you to it. He's calling us to a better, higher standard. Don't ask, what's the worst I can be? What is the minimum I can be as a Christian? Ask, how can I love others and love myself better? What does love require of me? The second area I think God is a good father is with forgiveness. Forgiveness. I think a lot of us don't trust God's calling to forgive. We think that we got to get even. we got to get revenge. we got to get justice. Our society says, don't give the pardon. Don't forgive. Justice must be served. Get outraged. Protest. Being a victim gives you credibility. And I know I've got some of you here. You love a good pity party. I can throw a great pity party. I always say I can throw a rager of a pity party, complete with techno music, and it's going to be the loudest, the craziest, the best party ever, just like Poppy and Trolls, right, except for a pity party and terrible. But anyway, I know some of you, your identity is rooting in being abused, abandoned, harassed, maligned, neglected, victimized, discriminated against. I get that it's comfortable, and I don't want to minimize your pain. I've experienced many hurtful things in my life as well, but I want you to hear this. Holding on to my hurt and bitterness has gotten me nowhere. When I sit there at night and I think about how much that person has hurt me and I just lose sleep over thinking about how much I hate them, does that hurt them? No, it doesn't affect them at all. Who was hurt the most by that? Me, right? Who was held back the most by that? Me. And I sat there with fantasies of revenge, right, in my life. I've just thought, well, I can't wait to bring them to justice. I can't wait to expose what they have done to me, how they bullied me, how they did these things and said these things and racist and all this stuff that's happened to me in my life. And you know what? Sometimes in my life I have brought people to justice. And it felt terrible. Like, the moment of revenge was completely, utterly unfulfilling and unsatisfying. There was no satisfaction in it. I spent hours on hold fighting injustice with customer service, sometimes with the police, with local businesses, whatever. And no matter what, even if you win, you just feel yucky. You just feel yucky. But being forgiving, moving forward, and being loving has only blessed me and the people who were formerly my enemies. 
It's almost only good that has come from it. This is why suddenly Jesus' words here make so much more sense. You've heard that the law says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, don't resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer them the other cheek also. He's not saying it because he wants you to lose. This gets laughed at in society, but I want you to know he's saying it because it's the only way to win. It's about your peace, your joy, your prosperity. Love wins. God suddenly makes a lot more sense here. And you know it. You don't even need to be a Christian to see it. God's plan is so contrary to human nature. It's so different. It's so radical. And it's genius. How much better would our lives be, our families be, our extended families be, our jobs be, if we forgave, we loved, and we chose grace? Instead of worrying about justice being served, instead of worrying about fair and unfair, what if we just said, I want to be a person of love and grace in every part of my life rather than choosing justice? What if that was who we are? What if that is how you lived your life? How much more free would you be? How much better would your sleep be? How much better would your relationships be if you followed God's plan of love? And I know for so many of us, we're like, but that's not fair. And it's not. It's just the path to freedom. Would you rather have fairness or would you rather have freedom? Some of you are in darkness right now, trapped in bitterness, lonely and hurting, in a world that says stay that way. I just want you to know that Jesus has a better way. It's a way of love. It's a calling that's better. Sin leads to darkness, but God has a plan called love that leads to freedom and joy. Don't ask, how can I get justice and revenge? Ask, what does love require of me in this moment? In this moment, there's freedom in it. God is a loving father with forgiveness. I also think that he's a loving father with business and finances. This is a big one in America today. I think our world says, what can I do? Especially in this one area, I think as an American, it's like, what can I do to take advantage of the system? I need to exploit every loophole and whatever. I'm not saying it's wrong to set up a tax shelter that's illegal and whatever, whatever. But I think for so many of us, we conduct our mindset as, as in like, with business, it's a battlefield. I got to win. My winning means them losing. That's the mentality that we have. And Jesus says, no, no, no. When it comes to business, when it comes to work, what if we create win-win situations? What if we create situations where there's mutual value? And I've seen both kinds of business people in my life. On the one kind, you know, you see this guy who's super rich, super successful, and like has no relationships, and everybody's out to get me, and i got to protect it, and da -da -da -da. is that the way you want to live your life? I've met others who are also really successful, who have lots of great relationships and connection, and they look back at a career, and they're like, man, I'm so glad that we were able to create value for this community together. I want to be the latter. Every shred of data that we have says that conducting your business in a way that builds relationships and creates generosity is one of the single biggest indicators of life satisfaction regarding wealth. It's a big deal for us in life. <laughs> when, you ask, when we ask you to give here, as a non-Christian, I heard about that 10% first fruits thing, and I thought, are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. But suddenly I understand it. I understand this generous mindset is something that's really moving to me. There's a study that came out that talked about political candidates and their generosity um, in this most recent cycle. And uh, almost all the candidates don't give anything. And it was just like, man, I don't want to follow that, right? I want to follow people who are generous. I want to be a part of a system where people give. And it's so interesting because candidates for generations past have been extremely generous. You know, most political candidates were given like 20% of their income. And I want to be something like that. I want to follow people like that. There's a reason why, you know, you can see it in our life and our mentalities. I want to conduct my life and my business in a way that's generous and cares about people. Instead of saying church is church, family is family, and business is business, I want to say Everyone is a part of God's family, and we're called to love and treat everyone with dignity and respect in all parts of our life. I want you to think about the people you love and respect most. The people that I do are people who live with this. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I want that to be us. As a church, I want that to be the way that we live. God is calling us to a plan that leads to joy, to treat people well, to be kind and forgiving. And I don't think this is a call to codependency. 
I mean, God forbid, if any of my children ended up becoming addicts and they asked for money that they, I knew they'd spend on drugs, it would be unloving of me to enable that bad thing. Like, that's not what I'm talking about here. This is saying, what is in their best interest? What does love require? How can I treat someone with dignity and respect? Love is the best. I think suddenly we begin to see that God is a loving Father. He's calling us to look to be our best, not our worst. And I could go on and on, but the point is, the point is, the point is, that God is a good Father. I think that some of you here today may have doubted this, but even if you're not a Christian, as we look at God's plan for our life, I think it's pretty clear and evident that God's a good God. There's so much evidence that his plan is best. Every shred of sociological science that we have tells us that God's plan of love in every area works, that it leads us out of darkness into light. I don't know what you've been holding back from God today, but I know some of us are here today and we're convicted by this. Maybe there's some kind of issue in your life. Maybe it's your sexuality or your love life that does not match with God's plan. Maybe it's your anger and bitterness that does not match with God's plan. But God is a good father. Like we actually know that he is a good father. What if you walked out of darkness in that area of your life and surrendered that area to him? I think for so many of us, we say, well, I believe in God with most of the areas of my life, but there's this one little area that I'm just going to hold back. There's this one little area that I'm just going to keep reserved for myself. What if you said, no, I want to surrender everything. Like, Jesus, I want to give it to you. Break up with that girl. Forgive that relative. Stop that business practice. And I won't lie to you, it's not always easy. Sometimes there's suffering in the moment. But love is willing to suffer for what matters most. I just want you to know, I think that we have to fight for it. For thousands of years, the question that most people ask has been, what is the least good I can be and still be accepted? How far can I lean out over the edge without the stick breaking? Jesus came and said, anything less than our best is darkness. I don't want you to worry about how close you can get to the edge. I want you to get as far away from the edge as you can. I want you to look to me and love me. That's the standard of love. And he's the only one who ever loved perfectly in his life. He never sinned. But then this is what Jesus did. He jumped into the water and rescued us because that's what love does. When we ask him to, he forgives us and he leads us and he helps us get back on the dock. He dries us off again and gives us a hope and a future. As you get ready to go home, I have some questions in your notes that I just want to review with you because I want to challenge you to, to journal about this. Maybe talk with somebody that you love and respect about this. I want you to actually have a discussion. Church isn't meant to be an hour on Sunday morning. It's meant to be more than that. And I wrote down four questions that I challenge you to have. Number one, do you believe that God is a good father and that his plan is best? This is a big one for me personally because I remember my dad giving me enough space to just honestly say, no, I don't. As a 13-year-old, I remember telling him, I don't believe that God's plan is best. And it was the beginning of my real spiritual journey where eventually I would actually see my father's faith and my mother's faith become my own. Number two, where in your life are you living for less than your best? Less than love would call. And again, especially if you've got teenage kids in the room, I want you to actually give them space to safely say in these areas, right? And don't, and this is the big thing I always tell parents of teenagers, don't freak out, okay? You let them say it. You talk with them. You let the next generation be honest about where they're doubting God. And this is such a critical question, number three. Is that bringing satisfaction now and in the future? Because here's the truth. Every time that I've rebelled against God's plan, it feels good for a moment. But when I ask myself this question, this is what brings me back. Because I recognize, man, no. You know, I tried it a few times. I went there a few nights. I did these things a couple times. And it doesn't bring satisfaction like I thought it would. And it certainly won't in my future. And I want to change. And then lastly, I hope that this is meaningful for you. Um, this is a big one for me. Where do you have the most darkness, anger, bitterness, frustration? What does love call you to be in that place this week? 
I want you to actually think about something. I want you to actually journal something. I actually want you to change your life because of what we've talked about today. Even if you're not a Christian, I want you to think about your life, think about God's standard, and just think, what does love require of me to not live in darkness in my life in the darkest area right now? I don't know what that would be for you, whether it's grief or anger or frustration, whatever it is. I want you to think, how can I bring the law of love to an area of my life this week? As we close, I want to ask you guys to stand. My freshman year of high school, there was um, a kid named Will Stoltz that I battled to be the best with on the cross-country running team, which is the sport that all the coolest kids do, cross-country running, said no one ever. But anyway, um, him and I battled to be the best. And uh, there was another kid named Tony Hoff who was like JV all the way. He was in our class. He was also a freshman, but he was not good. And uh, anyway, Will and I were always battling to be the best. And Will was naturally gifted. He didn't have to work really hard. I worked what I thought was harder than Will would work. In my mind, it was the hardest I could work. But looking back, I didn't really work that hard. I just, like, did what the coach said rather than skipping and ditching practice, right? And because I worked a little harder than Will, I could compete with him. And we dueled to be the best. And this went on for many years. I remember the summer between my junior and senior year. Tony was still, Tony Hoff, that nerd who was way back there, he was, he was never good. He was still not good. But I remember at the start of the summer between our junior and senior year, he said, I'm going to try as hard as I can. I'm going to bring my best. I'm really going to swing at this. And um, he ran 500 miles that summer. That was his goal. He ran 500 miles. And he brought his 5K down, down from 18 minutes and 30 seconds to like 16 minutes and 30 seconds. And that year, I think his best would be like 16.24. He, um, he went from being the worst to being the best because he said, I'm going to fight for this. I'm going to fight for this. He became the best on our team. And that's what I want to challenge you to do today. I think some of you, you're like, oh, I received God's grace, and that's good enough, right? And you're living in darkness, and listen, you got to fight for it. you got to fight against sin in your life. Loving and believing and following Jesus will bring salvation, but you got to fight for holiness. you got to fight against sin. When it comes to morals and ethics, the world says, what is the worst you can be? What is the worst you can be without falling in the water? But God is a standard that is totally different. It flips it on its head. He calls us out of darkness for our good for our holiness, for our relationships. God is a good father who calls his sons and daughters to more, but you got to fight for it. And I want to look at the next generation. And you have a harder life than I had. You have more proclivities and temptations and issues than I ever faced. But I want to challenge you to stand on the ridge and roar at it. I want to challenge you to swing as hard as you can and fight for it. Fight against sin. Fight against darkness in our life. I want you to bring your best. Instead of saying, what is the worst I can be? I see God calling you from darkness to life, from your worst to your best, from sin to love. Young men in the room, the weak road, the cowardly road is a worldly one, but God is better for you. I want you to fight for love. I want you to fight for the best. I want you to fight for God's standard. Let's pray for the next generation together. Jesus, I lift up our sons and daughters to you. I pray that you would give them courage and discipline to fight for what matters, to love you more, to be more, to be better, to be an example, and to be love for our world, Jesus, to be your love. Thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. In the name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen and amen.